It is great to see everybody, and uh, I'm honored to be up here. I feel weird not having a microphone, so if I get fidgety, please bear with me. Uh, but I am honored to be able to share the word with you this morning. How beautiful is it that we got to do this two weeks in a row? I just, I am so thrilled. And I just love how Jesus transforms us. You know, really, truly, honestly, isn't it incredible? We go from these wanderers lost, you know, in rags, and Jesus says, come. And he puts his righteousness on us in these royal, incredible robes. And that's what we get to live in. How awesome is that? It's so awesome. Well, this week, uh, we're going to continue our parables uh, series. We're on week seven. I know I've been enjoying it and learning and growing. I don't know about you guys, but I just feel like it's taking me deeper and giving me such a better understanding of the parables. For me, I know sometimes looking at the parables, I feel like I'm constantly like, there's more here than I understand, and I'm digging in it, and I find I can get lost in them. So I love the simplicity that uh, Jeff has brought, and I know, um, I know the other pastors have brought to understanding the parables. So just a quick refresher. When we're looking at parables, it is an invite for us to ask, who am I in the story? You know, what is, what is God trying to tell me? But in it, we need to be careful that as we interpret this, you know, we're not making assumptions that there's all these hidden meanings in it, that it's super complicated um, because it's not meant to be that. It's a story to help us understand. And Jesus says, you know, if we're coming to him and we're asking him, we will understand. But if we're blind, we're not going to understand. And so I love that we can simply come and ask him. And it's not meant for us to try and find what we want to say in it, right? If it's left up to all this interpretation, we start to put our own thoughts and ideas into it. But it's meant to be with a clear message. And so this week, we're going to look at... Let me put my glasses on here. I swear, this year, I've lost more eyesight. I don't understand. I used to be able to get away with, like, squinting, and now I can't. Um, so this week, we're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins. And this is found in Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Now, if you remember, last week, Jesus, uh, Jeff shared the parable of the sheep and goats. And this one is just before that parable. There is this series of three parables that Jesus shares uh, in Matthew 25. And this is the first one. And then the one Jeff shared last week is the last one in that series. And this um, series of parables is meant to illustrate things about his second coming. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus was talking to his disciples about his second coming, and then he used these parables to illustrate it. So if you remember, Jeff kind of went over the setting that these parables, uh, Jesus is sharing these parables in. Um, and if you want, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to kind of sit in that space for this, uh, for this time. And he was letting us know that this was just after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, if you're familiar with kind of the Easter story. Uh, just before, he rides in a donkey. Everybody's hailing him as king. They're celebrating him, thinking he's their victorious Messiah in the way they see it should be. And um, he then proceeded to go into the temple, overturn all the tables of the people who were selling things and taking advantage of people within the temple, saying, like, this has to stop. This is meant for prayer. This isn't meant for this. 
The religious leaders are agitated and frustrated. They're angry. They feel that Jesus is out of line. And um, they're not seeing what's right in front of them. And uh, they can't see, even though they feel they have the best understanding of God's word and uh, God and his plan, they actually cannot see that Jesus is the Messiah. They're completely blind to it. And the religious leaders are now plotting to arrest Jesus and have him killed. So Jesus, this is the setting that Jesus is sharing all this in. He's being very clear with his disciples that he's going to be arrested and killed. And uh, they're asking him about his second coming. And so he's explaining this. So this is where we're coming from. So let's pray and then we'll jump right in. Father God, I thank you that... You sent your son, Jesus, for us. And not only did you send him to die and cover our sins and take our place where we cannot and pay a debt we cannot, but also to invite us to live with you forever. It wasn't just to stop there um, and then to leave us floundering here on earth, but he is preparing a place for us at his father's house and will return to us and take us with him. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that we get to live in eternity with you. And so I pray that as we open your word, as we dive into it, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, your simple message of love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you absolutely love to wait? Nobody? I don't either. I don't enjoy waiting. At first, it can be exciting, but then it gets excruciating, doesn't it? And God often has this wait time that does not fit with ours. Well, this parable is about the waiting and what we do with the waiting. So let's read the parable first, and then we'll just kind of go through it and figure out what it's trying to tell us. So we're going to read in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Feel free to open your Bibles and read along, or you can see it on the screen there. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when, uh, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of extra oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So it's a bit of a sobering parable, I have to say. Uh, There's definitely a ring of like, kind of a little chill, right? So we're going to kind of walk through this so we can really understand what it is that Jesus is saying with this parable. And if you like, as we're talking, you can look up in Matthew 24 and you can see just before Matthew 25, there's a section where 
Jesus explains his second coming, and you may actually see some parallels, well, you will, between the parables and the sections of Jesus telling what it looks like and the things that he's saying. So take a peek at that. So we're going to go through this little by little. So it says then, right? It opens with then the kingdom of heaven. So that then is meaning, it's referring to the fact that Jesus is talking about his second coming, okay? And the kingdom of heaven will be like this story, okay? He's saying it's like the virgins who bring their lamps and go and meet the bridegroom. This is an introduction to the whole thing. It's not meant to be for us to like pick apart and figure out all the representations in it. He's introducing what he's trying to say. The kingdom of heaven isn't just like the virgins. Excuse me, I get a little excited here. Um, (laughs) It's not just like the virgins. It's like the virgins waiting to meet the bridegroom, okay? So this parable is aimed to those who claim to be a part of the kingdom, speaking about being ready in the waiting and waiting well for the Messiah's return, okay? So we need to keep that frame of mind as we're reading it, okay? This is meant for all of us, those of us who are part of the kingdom of heaven. So this parable uses a marriage feast, as, a, as, as the story for us to kind of help us understand. So let's get a little bit of a, an understanding of a typical Jewish wedding back in this time. Now, there was first a betrothal in a Jewish wedding, and that would be a time when the families, there would be two families, sometimes the, the bride and groom would be involved and sometimes they wouldn't, but the betrothal would be when they would kind of make this contract that this bride and this groom, this young lady and this young man were going to get married. This was a contract. It wasn't like our engagement today where it'd be like, will you marry me? Yes, and then it's just kind of this this agreement, but it has a looseness to it. This was a contract, and it could only be broken by divorce. They were basically married at this point. Now, they weren't together, they weren't living together, but this was a firm contract that was going to be followed through. If you remember, uh, Joseph and Mary in the Christmas story, right? They were betrothed, and then he found out she was pregnant, and he was going to break the engagement with divorce, right? So they were not living together, and he was like, how are you pregnant? And so he decided that he was going to divorce her quietly. That's the understanding. This is a firm thing. They have to get married unless they divorce. So after the betrothal, the man would go and prepare a place, usually at his father's house, for the two of them to live once they were married. And so that would take a year, sometimes longer, for him to go do. So he would leave that family, they would make this contract, he would leave the bride's family and go and make this place for them to be able to stay so that they had what they needed to start a life together. Then, once that was prepared, he would then come back and the marriage feast and the ceremony would happen. And so this was how it would go. So it was a long thing and it was very firm and full of all these contracts, right? So uh, we need to understand that and it probably helps hearing then um, this parable to know that. So typically about nightfall, once the bridegroom had come, about nightfall, a processional of people with lamps and torches would then accompany the bride to the groom's house in celebration. So this is the understanding, at least the out, like the general understanding that he was telling this story in. 
Now the virgins in this parable are bridesmaids. These women would help the bride to just get ready for the wedding. You know, when they knew the groom was coming, they would help get her already dressed, whatever other preparations need to happen. And then they are now waiting to meet him and bring him to the bride. Now you'll notice that the virgins all have multiple things in common, right? They all have oil in their lamps. They all are waiting with great anticipation for this bridegroom. They all have taken their oil lamps with them, and they all became drowsy and slept. So, you know, it's not like there was a huge distinguishing between them. You can't always tell the difference between the wise and the foolish. This is the thing, the bridegroom was a long time delayed. This isn't a bad thing, this is just a fact in the story. And even in this, there is no difference between the wise and the foolish. So as you're looking at this parable, don't start digging, trying to think like, oh, they fell asleep, you know, there's something about that or some representation. No, they just fell asleep. This is a normal thing to do sometimes when you're waiting, you know, is you get drowsy and you go to sleep. So it's not pointing to a lack of readiness in them falling asleep or becoming drowsy. Where the parable is leading is to the fact that the wise ones were prepared with extra oil, whereas the foolish ones were not. So the wise ones were prepared to carry on with the groom when he came, but the foolish ones were left scrambling once he came and having to get themselves sorted out. So this parable fits very beautifully with 24, where you see that Jesus is saying multiple things about his second coming. He says this, no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming of the Son of Man. He says the coming may be later than expected. And we need to be ready for the long haul. He says that it's our duty as disciples not to abandon the things we know we need to do, but to fulfill them even in the waiting. And he says, it is urgent that in the waiting we give our best in serving the Lord as we wait for him to come. So the suddenly of God doesn't necessarily come the way we expect, does it? It doesn't. So what separated the wise ones from the foolish ones? It was a fact that they understood they needed to be prepared to wait and stay prepared. They weren't just prepared for the sudden return within the expected time frame, but for the potential of it to take longer than they anticipated. They were ready to stay the course no matter what. So as we look at this parable, we need to understand that how we wait matters. It matters. We all know Jesus is coming. How we wait for Jesus to return matters how we serve each other and love each other, how we spend our time and our lives, it matters. And so we also may be sitting here looking at this parable and wondering, well, how can, these, how can Jesus be telling this story? You know, there's five virgins that have extra and there's five virgins that have less. Why would they not share? Why would Jesus tell them not to share? That doesn't even make sense. He's always telling us to share. But you have to remember that in this parable, he's actually pointing to a much more weighty thing, right? He's using this story. Do you guys remember the story of, like anything from our childhood, stories that would had a point? The tortoise and the hare. It had a very specific point to it. 
The kids aren't meant to sit there and analyze all the little pieces. They're meant to understand the point. We are like God's children. He's trying to get a point here. And so as we look at it, we can't get hung up on these moments. The wise said, if I give you some, we will not both have enough. We'll all be out in the dark, basically. And so Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't share. We should. What he's saying is, this isn't what it's about. In this story, what he's saying is, come prepared. Stay prepared for my return. Keep your heart ready and waiting for me. All right. The parable says, when the bridegroom appears, the five foolish virgins, they scurry off to buy oil and that they return home and they're not re- because they, were, they weren't ready. They were scrambling at the time of, G- of his return. And I think if we pause, we need to make sure that we're keeping ourselves ready. And if we think, you know, that we can scramble when we think Jesus is returning, we can't. It's sudden. It's, it's there. It's a moment. And so we need to stay in that posture before him of following him. We read at the end of the parable, it says this, the virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, you do not know the day or the hour. And that's in Matthew 25. Now, I think there's very, something very significant about the fact that it says, Though were who were, those who were ready went with the bridegroom, right? The, the virgins who didn't have enough oil, they showed up at the door, right? Let us in. But they didn't get there with him. But the ones who had the extra oil went with him. That bridegroom was right there with him, and so he was like, I know you. But these other ones, they left before he was there, and then they come back, and he's like, I, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I can't let you in. And so we need to understand this, I think, as we read. This with Jesus is important. This with the bridegroom is important. We need to stay postured in this stance of like, I'm with you. I'm waiting to see you. I'm ready. When you arrive, I'll recognize you, and I want you to see me. And it's this posture of readiness before the Lord. So what does this mean for us now today? What is Jesus trying to tell us? I believe he's saying be ready. Persevere even when it feels like it's taking too long. Our readiness really matters. It doesn't mean we're gonna do this perfectly. All of us have ups and downs. All of us are growing. There is grace. It's not about that. It's about this staying in this place where we're anticipating him however long he comes. We're putting in place the things we need to. If we look at the virgins, they were all excited and anticipated his arrival. This is the people of God anticipating Jesus' return. And we need to remember that we need to live with that anticipation however long it takes and not grow weary of waiting. Every generation from the time of Jesus when he was talking his disciples till now has anticipated Jesus' return and has wondered, is it going to be in my lifetime? 
until now, none of them have seen him return <laughs> in their lifetime. Now, it could be in ours, right? But clearly, his return is delayed, much like the bridegroom. It hasn't happened in any of our expected times. And so, we do not know how much longer he'll be delayed. It could be now, or it could be 100 years from now. We really don't know. And God's heart is for all people to have the opportunity to know him. And so we need to trust that in the delay, it serves the purpose of his greater mission. And sometimes I think when we're journeying with God, we can grow weary or bored or disillusioned with how long things are taking or disillusioned with how long he's delaying. You know, we're thinking we know. And I want you to trust that in the delay, God has this figured out. There is a greater purpose and allow him to lead you as he chooses. In the delay, we also feel that groaning, that waiting. There is the anticipation, the excitement, but there's also the hard. There's the time where we feel kind of weary and sleepy, you know, where we're just having to keep plodding along. When the, when the excitement dies down and the waiting is hard, you know, when the curveballs come or the trials and pain, will we continue to wait well? Just this past weekend, my boys were waiting to go to their grandma's house. And so they got up super excited. They were thrilled. They were screwing around the house, packing all their stuff. That anticipation was definitely in the air. They were uh, helping each other. They were so kind to each other. They, you know, one of them was like, I'll go to the shed and get all that for you. And the other was like, oh, I've got this for you. And you know, they were great. They cleaned their room. When I said like, hey, make your bed, of course, mom. You know, the attitudes were amazing when the waiting was easy. And they were like, when dad's, when's dad getting here? And they found out it'd be like 12 to one o'clock, dad was gonna be home. Okay, great. Well, just before 12, what do you think happens? Hey, mom. Hey, mom, where's dad? Hey, mom, mom, where's dad? Oh, he'll be home soon. I'm sure he'll be home. Well, okay, okay. So then a little bit of time goes off. 12 goes and comes. And then lots of asking, where's dad? How long? Then 12.30 comes and goes. And then it's a little less like friendly asking. It's more like, mom, where's dad? Like, what's taking him so long? I'm like, relax, he'll get here. Then one o'clock comes and goes. Well, do you think that they were happy? They were not. You know, and so I'm like, well, and I had asked the boys to clean the kitchen before they go and empty the dishwasher. Well, when I asked them, they were like, ah, oh. this was when by the time they were kind of a little miserable about the waiting. Oh, I don't want to. One of them pretended they hadn't heard me and the other one was like, yeah, sure. Oh, look, <laughs> you know, they just were dawdling and not doing it. So finally I had to draw the line. I had to say, listen, you want to go? If you want to go, before you go, this has to happen. While they were bickering and fighting and arguing and like giving me faces and each other faces, it was miserable. But they did it. But in the length of time, it took so much longer that no longer were they waiting nicely. And if I hadn't have made them, they would have never cleaned that kitchen. They would have never been ready. So I think we as Christians can often get like that, can't we? 
when we first are like anticipating Jesus or when we have a moment with him, we're like, yes, Jesus. And we're like, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And we're running around doing all the good things. We're reading our Bible. It's amazing. And we're praying. And then when it gets hard and we're like, ah, it's hard. And it's like, oh, I should read my Bible today. I'll get to it later. And that person, they're so annoying. They're driving me crazy. You know, like, I'll just sit over here today. You know, like, we can find in the waiting, it can be hard. It can be hard in the waiting for Jesus. And so, you know, I think if we pause and think about human nature, we have to work to wait well for Jesus. We have to be disciplined to wait well for Jesus. Is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. But we're not going to feel like it at the time. You know, we're not always going to feel like it. And so we have to stay focused on the reason we're here. The reason those, those bridesmaids were there was to wait for the groom, meet him, and go with him. No other reason. The reason we're here is to wait for Jesus to live waiting to meet him. And in the meantime, be prepared, be ready, be doing whatever he asks. And so in the talk that Jesus gave to his disciples before the parable, he mentioned Noah. He referenced the time of Noah. Um, And if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're not, we can definitely go through it. But Noah... You know, he, he, it says that in his time, the people were just living as they were. They were marrying, they were like going about their business, no acknowledgement to God or interest in knowing God. But Noah, God spoke to Noah and said, Noah, you know, prepare, I'm bringing a flood. Because Noah wanted to know God. He was righteous in his eyes. So God said, Noah, prepare. So Noah diligently prepared. People thought he was a lunatic. They thought he was crazy. It wasn't easy work. He built a giant boat, you know, with dimensions that God gave him for a flood like they didn't even see rain, for something he didn't even know. And yet he prepared diligently, as God asked, for this unknown thing that was coming his way. And even though for us, I think we can learn from that about preparation. As God tells us, I'm coming, I'm coming, I have a kingdom for you. And we don't fully really understand. Our human brain cannot get this. It is way outside of what we can comprehend. He's saying, prepare as I ask you. Do what I ask you, and I am coming for you, I promise. It is worth it. The preparation is worth it. Let's not just go about our business like it's not even going to happen. I don't want to miss that boat. I don't want to be shut out because I got apathetic or I just lost, I lost my interest in staying the course. I want to stay vigilant like Noah. Don't grow weary of staying ready. It says in Galatians 6, 7 to 10, it says this, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows, what pleases their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, 
for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So how do we be prepared? How do we get ready for Jesus' coming? It may not be in our lifetime, so how do we be prepared to meet with him? Are you pursuing God as you did when you first met him? Is he still your first love, not just in feeling, but in action, in mindset, in pursuit? Are you giving the Holy Spirit room to convict you and work in you and guide in you and grow you to bring you outside of the comfortable, challenge you, comfort you? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines that keep you tuned in to God's voice, that keep you close to him and with him? Are you reading and applying God's word actively in your life? I know this is a challenging word. I know it challenges me. It causes me to look, am I, am I just kind of floating along in my relationship with God, or am I actively pursuing him? Am I actively waiting? There's this activeness to the waiting that God calls us that's not just hoping for the best, but there's this diligence and a perseverance in it. And so I know I, I'm being called. Am I actively waiting for God? Am I doing all that he's asking of me? It calls us to this introspection and perseverance It sheds light on the fact that we need to persevere in our faith and wait well. It's not about a moment, a single prayer. It is about a daily surrender and submission to God. So no, God's grace is sufficient. It's not about us being perfect, but it's that pursuit of God. It's that wholehearted submission saying, wherever you lead, I will go. Whatever you ask for, it's yours. Whatever you need of me, I'm here. And allowing him to work out that salvation that we have so that we're ready when he comes. Let's pray. Father God, when the Son of Man comes, I thank you. I thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit, that we do not have to wait alone. We don't have to wait in our own strength. For it says, when, when we wait on you, when we trust in you, you renew us and you restore us and you come under us and you lift us like soaring on the wings of eagles. It's not heavy and burdensome, but there's a lightness in it, God. But you do ask us to actively wait for you and not to grow weary and not to lose our way to continue to pursue you and allow you to lead us so that we're ready to be with you and not scampering off to make things ready and make things right before we get to you. God, I pray that if there is areas in my life where I am not actively waiting for you, that you would put your finger on that in our lives, God, as your bride, as your body, that you would teach us how to wait well, what it looks like, 
to not grow weary in well-doing. We need you, Jesus, so much. It's this incredible thing where we're waiting on you and have, at the same time, absolute dependency on your Holy Spirit. And so I thank you that we have so many things at our fingertips to help us do this well. God, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would have the discipline and the perseverance, the long-suffering to be able to do this. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.